I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for July 2nd, 2022. This week, needing to diverge a bit from some of the stuff I've been reading on the history of psychotherapy and capitalism, I read a few folktales from Italo Calvino's collection. I'm noticing, perhaps oddly for the first time, that there's a preoccupation in the old Italian stories with captivity and liberation, specifically involving women as those needing to be freed. I also continued reading Philip Cushman's Constructing the Self, Constructing America, and read the first two chapters of Ignacio Martin Barrow's Writings for a Liberation Psychology. Through Cushman's book, I've learned the term self-domination, which is related to the mind-body split that emerged in the 17th century. The logic goes that mind and body are distinct and that the irrational body is to be controlled by the rational mind. This extends, of course, to the natural other-than-human world, including any human who's deemed to be subhuman. I've been paying closer attention to the way this hierarchy replicates in psychological spaces, from therapy to tarot readings. I recall psychotherapist Andy Fisher's talk at Schumacher College, which I've shared bits from before in the offerings. Fisher identifies this split as an ideological move. Sucking the soul out of nature and placing it inside the individual, says Fisher, is the only way to justify and maintain the abuse and extraction that capitalism requires. Non-human nature becomes brute matter, and if there's suffering, it's an individual problem. I've been considering the ways in which we suck the soul from the body as well. For instance, if you've ever done a westernized mindfulness meditation, you might recall being encouraged to take an objective, non-judgmental stance while observing the parade of thoughts, feelings, and sensations that unfurl in the theater of the body. The implication is that the contents of this parade are fleeting and insubstantial. Said another way, they are neutralized or devalued. Self-domination becomes possible to the extent that we can observe our internal experiences objectively, as if that were possible, without reacting to them. I personally have written a ton from this perspective, for example, my take on the emperor in Tarot for Change. And in light of all I've said here, I'm only now starting to look critically at the philosophical underpinnings of that approach to human experience. There's a story in Calvino's folktale collection titled Body Without Soul that I remembered this week not because of the weirdly apt name, but because the main character shapeshifts from ant to lion to dog to eagle and so on. I went seeking the story because I've been wondering about what happens when collective reactions to mass events become predictable and the unsustainability of reactive activism. And if you're wondering what any of that has to do with shapeshifting, I'm going to try to articulate that link here. I wrote about this story in the early days of the pandemic when I first read it and connected the teens shapeshifting with a teaching from the I Ching, which says that we do evil a favor by forming weapons directly against it because it learns to respond to those weapons and in doing so renders them obsolete. Today, I'm wondering who banks on the kind of activism that is reactive and knee-jerk but unsustainable. I probably wouldn't have reached for my anthology of Italian folktales at all this week if not for my wise friend, farmer and herbalist Annie Haas, who reminded me of the way old stories can help us remember, quote, we are not everything there is, not going to do the good thing by just being the most rational, willpower-focused, modern people, end quote. And that's a text from Annie. Even as I am knee-deep in learning about the history of this hyper-rational, willful way of being in the world, I need these reminders. 
So I went looking for this one particular story, whose name I'd actually forgotten, and I was wowed when I realized that the tale is literally titled Body Without Soul. Wowed because I've been doing all this intellectualizing and reading about the body without soul ideology, and what it has to do with capitalism and patriarchy and other hierarchies. Because I try not to go into a story with a fixed idea of what it's about, I left the connection aside as best I could and dove in. It starts with a teenage boy named Jack who wants to leave home to find fortune. His mom says he can't go until he's able to topple a pine tree with one kick. So he practices every day and eventually does it. He comes across a king who has a horse that's afraid of her shadow and therefore unrideable. So Jack rides the horse straight into the sun to keep the shadow out back. The king is amazed and the people are jealous. The king has a daughter who he hasn't seen since infancy when she was kidnapped by a sorcerer named Body Without Soul. Hoping to get Jack in trouble, the jealous people go to the king and say Jack's been bragging that he's going to find the king's daughter and free her. And when the king asks Jack about it and learns Jack actually knows nothing about her, the king is so angry that people have been trivializing his loss that he orders Jack to either find her and free her or die. So Jack grooms and tacks up the horse who can ride only straight at the sun, and I think that's an interesting detail, grabs a rusty sword and rides off. It's not long into the forest that he meets a lion, motioning him to stop. A bit nervous, Jack heeds the invitation, gets off his horse, and asks the lion what's up. But there's more than a lion there. There's also a dog, an eagle, and an ant. They have a dead donkey, who they're hoping to eat, but no tools to divide the body up with. And that's where Jack and his rusty sword come in. To the ant goes the donkey's head. It will make a good home and provide plenty of food. To the dog go the hooves, a long-term supply of gnawing. For the eagle, the entrails, easy to pick at and carry high into the canopy. And the rest to the lion, as is proper. And in return, the lion gives Jack one of his claws, which will turn you into the fiercest lion in the world when you wear it. The dog gives one of his whiskers, which will turn you into the fastest dog on earth by simply placing it under the nose. The eagle gives a feather, which, when called on, will transform Jack instantly to the biggest and strongest eagle in the sky. And finally, from the ant, Jack gets a tiny leg, which will make him so small as to be undetectable, even with a magnifying glass. Jack goes on his way, and a bit skeptical, he pulls over to test out the gifts. And sure enough, they are magic charms that instantly turn him to a lion, dog, eagle, and ant, and then back again. He smiles and goes along until he reaches the lakeshore, where Body Without Soul lives in a big castle and where the king's daughter is being held captive. In eagle form, Jack flies to the window, then becomes an ant and crawls in. Sure enough, there lays the king's daughter, sleeping. As ant, Jack crawls upon her cheek until she wakes. At this point, he gets off her cheek and changes back to a human, rushing to tell her that he's come to free her. Next, she agrees that when the sorcerer comes in, she'll trick him into telling her what it will take to kill him. After all, a body without a soul is built for things that an insouled body is not, like limitless youth and growth and functioning. To kill him will not be easy. When the sorcerer comes in, he tells her everything she needs to know, as Jack, in ant form, listens on. It will take a lion strong enough to kill the forest's elusive black lion. But once the black lion is dead, a dog so fast only the fastest dog in the world can catch him will spring from his stomach. 
If the fastest dog in the world should come, catch and kill him. An eagle will fly from his belly. This eagle will be so big and so strong that only a bigger, stronger eagle could catch and kill him. And in the unthinkable case that that happens, an egg will need to be pried from the dead bird's claw and cracked over the sorcerer's forehead. And only then will the sorcerer die. Of course, with his charms, Jack can do exactly each of these tasks, and he does. He goes from eagle to lion to dog, back to eagle, conquering each new animal with a quickness. Meanwhile, at the castle, the sorcerer falls ill. With egg in hand, Jack returns to the king's daughter who, under the guise of nursing her captor in sickness, cracks the egg over his brow and kills him. I first connected this story with Aleister Crowley and Lady Frida Harris' Nine of Wands from the Toth Tarot. Of the Nine of Wands, which is titled Strength, Crowley writes that the strength itself lives in, quote, its ability to change perpetually, and that defense, to be effective, must be mobile. I recognized in Crowley's interpretation the I Ching teaching. If evil adapts to what weapons are formed against it, a warrior should start from home rather than from a place of reactivity. Today, it makes me think about what's missed when a raw experience like grief, uncertainty, rage, guilt, or shame is bypassed by rushing to take swift and immediate action. One benefit of being able to feel feelings is that it gives you access to the possibility of change whose necessity is felt rather than simply intellectually known. No matter how many facts I might have, the change whose necessity burns deep in my body and can therefore afford to work slow and steady is the change that is sustainable. When the default weapon against hard feelings is avoidance, then the emotions harden, learn to preserve themselves rather than disperse and reorganize in such a way that new ways of moving with them can be possible. It's counterintuitive, but avoidance actually makes central what it seeks to escape, which is fear or distress or discomfort, rather than formulating ways of moving that are independent of that which is to be avoided at all costs. Maybe it's not independence we should aim for, though, but more so flexible relatedness. On flexibility, the teenage Jack's shape-shifting in the body without soul story seems then to say we should get spacious with the things we relate to as problems and be agile in our dealings with them. Rather than latch onto them in rigid, reactive ways, we can make ourselves slippery so that the things we are up against don't stick and then strengthen. And I recognize the ways in which a language of domination creeps in, even here. I don't think that automatically makes it useless or even harmful. I do think it requires questioning. I mentioned earlier that I've been reading a book of writings for a liberation psychology by psychologist and Jesuit priest Ignacio Martin Barreau. Chapter 2 is especially notable and is titled The Role of the Psychologist. In it, Martin Barreau writes that liberation is not a question of abandoning psychology altogether, but rather, quote, a question of whether psychological knowledge will be placed in the service of constructing a society where the welfare of the few is not built on the wretchedness of the many, where the fulfillment of some does not require that others be deprived, where the interests of the minority do not demand the dehumanization of all, end quote. I think there will be more to say as the body without soul story unfolds for me, but I'm out of time for today, so uh, we'll see you next week with more. Ooh.
You're listening to the offering for July 2nd, 2022. This is a subscribers-only offering, but if you feel moved to share it with a non-subscriber, please do. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The theme song is called Evaporate, and you can listen to that and more of Lee's music at the links in this post or wherever you stream music. Thank you so much for being here, and we will see you next time. 